This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome back. Leadership in Action, that is who we are. We're Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by our school, the Wharton School. For new listeners or Sirius XM subscribers, I'm your host, Mike Hussein. I'm the director of the Center for Leadership and Change here at Wharton. And I'm here with my good friend, my colleague, Jeff Klein, who is executive director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program at our school. And now I'm delighted to welcome our new guest, who's going to be joining us to talk about a book he has just co-authored. It's got a great title. Mastering Catastrophic Risk, How Companies Are Coping with Disruption. A lot of disruption out there. Think 9-11, think the financial crisis, think hurricanes, Jeff, and uh, I guess companies are doing something about that. Um, Howard, uh, great to have you on. This is Howard Conruther joining our program. Hello, Howard. Good evening, Mike. And let me say for the listening audience that you are the co-author of this book. Okay. (laughs) And there's no way you can get around that. We've had a good time writing it together. I'm delighted to be on your program, but I hope we have a dialogue on this since you uh, and I have had that over the years now. Uh, Indeed, it is a joint product. So thank you, Howard, for bringing that in. And I'm going to try to remain on the quieter side. Jeff's going to lead the charge here. But just to say a couple words about you in particular before we get going, you're a professor of decision sciences and public policy here at the Wharton School. And in particular, apropos this book, you are the director of the Wharton Risk Management and Decision-Making Process, Decision Processes Center. And you've been thinking about low probability, high consequence events for a long time, uh, both as a product of uh, natural setbacks, but also some of the human catastrophes that we're well aware of as well. So, Howard, we're going to have a dialogue on this, and I will get us going uh, with my first question on mastering catastrophic risk. Um, I think this is true because I think we wrote this together in Chapter 1, but uh, is it not the case that major risks, for reasons I'd like you to talk talk through if this is true, are on the, are, they're on the upswing? It's a worrisome world we're in right now, but maybe it's going to be more worrisome in the years to come not those minor because not those minors not because of those minor setbacks but uh the big ones major earthquakes hurricanes um fraud of the kind we've seen at uh, Volkswagen for example so anyway howard pick up on all that what's going on is the world become a becoming a less safe place what do you think well i think uh you're absolutely right mike and this is something we discovered uh in writing this book uh that <laughs> Uh, companies uh, were not paying a great deal of attention to these low probability events. They were below their threshold level of concern uh, for a variety of reasons. But after 9-11, they really are taking them more seriously, and a whole series of events have occurred since that time. And so when we interviewed uh, 100 of the S&P 500 firms, their their chief risk officer or CRO, Uh, we found them actually, all of them, saying that this is now high on their agenda. They are paying attention to them in ways they haven't paid uh, paid attention before, and they're trying to take steps in advance to at least reduce the consequences if, when these events occur, some of which are out of their control, as you just pointed out, with respect to hurricanes and earthquakes and natural disasters, uh, and others they have more control on internal activity in the firm and then uh, some of the things that could be happening uh, that they actually could uh, play a role in curtailing. So, Howard, it's Jeff, and uh, we're delighted to have you here on the show today. My pleasure, Jeff. All right, and um, I'm glad that you drew it out of Mike, that he was the co-author, because I was going to be much more devious about it. I was was going to ask you to tell us stories about all the ways in which your co-author was a challenge to work with. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, we can do that to each other if you'd like, Jeff. (laughs) You mean, Jeff, he was a real slug. (laughs) Um, And and I I, want to draw the link here. I I think we've got it established – Establish a little bit, but when when we use the term catastrophic risk, is that really pointing to these low probability, um, high consequence type of events? Is that 
Is that the frame that we should be in when we think about how to manage catastrophic risk? Well, it's an interesting question, Jeff, because when we interviewed our, um, these firms, we asked them what the most adverse event that their organization and their firm had faced uh, that they could recall. Sometimes they weren't even necessarily at the firm. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it could be a whole variety of events, some of which could be catastrophic in the sense that uh, Mike and myself had just pointed out, 9-11 uh, being one of them, and a number of them mentioned that. A number of them mentioned the Fukushima earthquake in Japan and how it uh, caused problems for their firms and, uh, and other natural disasters. Uh, the financial crisis certainly came up. But we also got a interesting answers from some of these firms. One of them just mentioned a kidnapping uh, event of one of their colleagues uh, who uh, really set off a whole set of concerns that the firm had. And you could say that was catastrophic for the firm itself, but it certainly wasn't catastrophic for other firms. And so it was on that basis that we actually cataloged essentially the kinds of events that uh, these firms were really referring to, and some of them, which I just mentioned, were high on their agenda. And one of the things that I thought was interesting in, in looking at the book and looking at the methodology um, was the ways in which you were using annual 10K reports and, and really trying to understand trends um, gleaned from those risk factors. So if you would, Howard, first, would, would you explain for our listeners, uh, if they're not familiar, um, what is the annual 10K report, um, and then, you know, some of the trends that you were able to glean as you looked at these risk factors that were being disclosed. Yeah. I'll say a few words about it, and Mike, please uh, chime in on this uh, as well. well. In fact, that's sure. true of probably every question. If Jeff is directed at me, <laughs> you're part of this process, so uh, I know you said you were going to keep quiet, but there, there would be t points, and I hope you do join uh, in. We'll jump in. Uh, with, with comments. The 10K reports are annual reports that the um, firms write uh, to d talk about their challenges and problems uh, over a period of time, and particularly in the past year. And we uh, examine those reports very, very carefully uh, to try to understand essentially how uh, things had changed over time. And I think the one thing that we found was that risk got mentioned much more often in more recent times than, than in earlier reports. And there were also things like regulations and some of the concerns that many of the firms had with respect to government regulations. Uh, not necessarily all negative. They also pointed out how they were trying to deal with them and that they might create a level playing field. And so it's on that basis that we looked at these 10K reports and we also looked at stock prices of companies that actually had their prices fall by a large amount or even increase, but primarily we were looking at the falling prices, and found that very often they were connected to uh, some uh, natural catastrophe or disaster or some event that occurred that really pushed them down and that they had to then recover, and we looked at the time that some of these firms had to recover from them. I'll quickly add to that in reference to the fact, as Howard alluded to, the, uh, the kind of firms we went into is the S&P 500. This, of course, is the Standard & Poor's list of the 500 largest companies that are publicly traded. So they're on a stock exchange. And if you're on a stock exchange in the U.S., the Securities and Exchange Commission requires in your annual report uh, that the, you have to file with the SEC in Washington uh, you have to write uh, a response to a question in Section 1A, what are the risks that the company is facing? This goes back to 05. It hasn't been there forever, and reports have been there for quite some time. And in the Section 1A, what is so striking uh, to Howard and myself, Jeff, is that when these sections were first written, they ran a, a page or two. But now, partly because people have become more disclosing, companies have become more disclosing about what they face, but also because the the list of the risks actually has expanded that companies now are savvy about. For example, in the early days, no reference to cyber. Mm -hmm. Almost all Section 1As in these reports now says, look, we, we uh, like a lot of companies, uh, are worried, very worried about cyber and the loss of our records and the like. And with that, I'm going to turn this around now, Howard. Companies uh, more disclosing and more risks. The trend lines are, are a little bit startling as you look at the impact. Let's make it just even hurricanes and climate change. All that being said, the thrust of what you and a certain co-author did was to look at what companies now are doing to bulk up against those threats, those risks. 
And you, you do make an affirmative case that companies have come a long way. So start, start us, get us thinking about what companies are doing to anticipate the unthinkable. Well, I think that uh, one of the key things that uh, companies are now doing is what kind of we have been studying and talking about over the last few years, and that is to really say we better prepare now for these low probability events. We recognize they're small, but we better actually try to, rec- uh, to figure out a way to deal with that. And one of the ways that they're doing it is that they're cons- considering worst-case scenarios. What could happen to us? Rather than saying that the probability is so low, uh, what are the likelihood, of, if there is going to be an event, how serious could it be, and what is it that we could do to actually prepare for that or take some steps? And I think this is the, the interesting part of uh, what's happening in firms is enterprise risk management is now a part of most of these firms. And it's not just the large firms, although we interviewed large firms. Smaller firms are also paying attention to this and trying to make sure the entire organization is participating in this whole dialogue. And so I think these, these aspects of recognizing that and then saying – Uh, Very explicitly, and this certainly happened right after the financial crisis, uh, where a number of the investment firms and financial institutions said, what is our risk appetite? How much of a risk are we willing to take? And what's our risk tolerance? And just by actually framing that question in that way, um, they were able to somehow address the issues of saying what other things that we could do to prevent another financial crisis occurring to our firm and to the industry, and that caught on with a number of other firms as well. So those are some examples of the steps that firms have taken. And I think one other point I'll just mention, because it comes back to the 10K reports as well, is the whole recognition by firms that they are facing global problems. And that was mentioned often in the reports. We've got a lot of interdependencies, interconnectedness that we have to think about when we manage our own risk. And some of these we can control and others we may not be able to, but we've got to recognize them. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why the Fukushima earthquake became very high on the list of many of these companies as something that really actually um, put them at risk in ways they had been unanticipating before. Yeah, let me pick up on that and just illustrate it in a a point you just made in a second way. Fukushima, of course, is in northeast Japan. Japan suffered this 9.0 on the magnitude scale earthquake back in 2011. A huge tsunami swept inland, probably killing at least 24,000 Japanese residents. But it also inundated the power plant at Fukushima, six active nuclear reactors. They never expected the tidal wave or the tsunami that came in. And as that, that facility, which is still hot, but at, at, uh, in the weeks right after the, the earthquake and then the tsunami of 2011, it looked at one point like not only would a couple reactors uh, begin to uh, – possibly explode. It looked like maybe all six were going to go up. Ultimately, they didn't. But that did shut down a major area around that particular location, northeast Japan, right on the coast, that included a number of companies supplying parts to the auto industry. So what you've made the point, we're all very interdependent. Boy, does it show up in this uh, instance in spades because uh, parts being made at a factory near Fukushima, the power plant, uh, that was now threatening to go sky high, they simply had to shut down, and as a result, some production lines halfway around the world had to do the same thing. We also document in the book, just to say it a second way, a once-in-a-century flood that inundated Bangkok, Thailand, and again, uh, disk drives, many components for computers made there. Uh, Dell had to shut down its assembly plants in the U.S. partly as a result of that. So that's the interdependency Piece. Howard, turning that though around on you, what else would help explain why these kinds of events, statistically speaking, cost-wise and otherwise, are on the upswing? Well, let me first let me just say one word about the point that you made on, on Fukushima and Thailand. And, and the Fukushima is a really great uh, example. Uh, many of these companies had only one source of supply. Yeah. And they decided on the basis of what happened in Fukushima and the fact that they were dependent on one source, at least to uh, uh, make sure that they had more than one and several as so that they could protect themselves against an event. So that's an example of where you really learn from these disasters. 
it. But to, to, to actually address the question that you're posing, Mike, in terms of what's causing all of these, I think that part of it has been due to the fact that we, ha we have now increased uh, numbers of companies and people who are living in high hazard areas uh, and moving in there uh, really with the fact that they're thinking that it isn't going to occur to us and they had a lot there are lots of positive features about being in these com areas Florida being a great example where a lot of, large number of people have moved uh, and uh, do not really want to think about the hurricanes that it could occur and population has increased by 350 percent over the last 20 or 30 years and so as a result of that you get a lot more people at risk you get firms that are in, in areas that can be hurt. You have a lot of business interruption when a lot of these when these disasters occur, and a number of the people who are living in there cannot get to work for a whole variety of reasons. So that's one element. There, the other element that we should pay attention to, and firms are beginning to pay attention to, is the whole climate change issue that is making a lot of these disasters worse. You have more intense hurricanes uh, than you had before, uh, some of which could be attributed to that. Uh, sea level rise is causing uh, uh, much more serious kinds of disasters as well. So you have a combination of these factors. And I think what we're seeing is that the planning that firms are doing now are really trying to take that into account. And they're asking themselves the question, uh, where should we be locating another plant? Uh, how do we diversify our risks in ways that we haven't done before? And we were really struck by the fact that uh, the companies themselves and the board of directors, and you can say a bit about that, Mike, as well, since you've studied them, uh, are really paying attention to these issues in a way that they haven't before. But it took essentially a set of these disasters and the increasing losses for them to really pay attention. Howard, thank you, Annette. Uh, I'm going to briefly remind everybody listening that this is Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Uceam. I'm here with Jeff Klein. And we're talking with Howard Conrue, the co-author of Mastering Catastrophic Risk, How Companies Are Coping with Disruption, published just a few days ago. Uh, and with that, Jeff, why don't you pick up on whatever you'd like to, and we're going to keep this going. Well, I, I, uh, <laughs> it's a, kind of a cheap move, but I, I'm going to repeat Howard's question to you, which is... <laughs> That's right. Don't let Mike get away. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Don't worry, Jeff, Howard. Jeff, Jeff, uh, Jeff, you're absolutely uh, right. Jeff, you stop. say <laughs> a good deal about that. Raise the question, and Mike will respond. And uh, if I have okay. else, I'll Okay, in. guys. May I call for I'm ready. All right. And, and Howard, just know that we can always just fall back on total silence. <laughs> so, <laughs> Nature of horrors of vacuum. Yeah. So, Mike, we know... Um, you know, we know that there there has been and continues to be, especially for public companies, uh, a really short term focus. Yeah. Right. And quarterly earnings. Now we we've seen recent calls for firms to even step away from quarterly earnings. Um, but it it earnings guidance, quarterly guidance continues to be the norm. What role do boards play in trying to encourage both company leadership as well as organizations to take this longer-term view of risk? Jeff, let me just say that's a really good question. Well, thank you. See? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so there it is. Uh, you raise a question that's got a couple different facets to it, if you will. A board of directors consists, we all know this, of people who are not there full-time, Typically, boards will meet maybe five or six times a year for a day or a day and a half. And if we take the clock back far enough, uh, boards almost never had to think about what could disrupt the supply chain mm -hmm. or about the possibility that, that their plant could be inundated by a flood or maybe a CEO kidnapped. But with uh, so many near misses and some hits, so think about – a BP's disaster in the Gulf where oil was leaking for several months. Think about what we've already described in Japan. Uh, think about some of the, literally, the the one-off company disasters that have plagued, for example, Facebook, as it has been now accused of allowing uh, too many people to get too much information, or Volkswagen that had the defeat devices installed so that if your car went in for a test uh, for its emissions, it uh, the defeat device turned off the bad report as long as you were being tested and put the car back on the road with a clean bill of health. All that being said, uh, and Howard alluded to the fact that when a disaster, a major disaster, a catastrophe strikes, companies often will lose 10%, 20%, 25% of their share of value. Mm -hmm. 
For larger companies, that's in the billions. That's been enough to wake up directors to say this can't happen. We've got to stop these uh, potentially catastrophic events. Some we can't prevent. Take earthquakes, for example. They just come or volcanic eruptions. But we have undermanaged our readiness. We have undermanaged, the company has undermanaged its readiness to respond and be ready. And thus now, uh, many boards, we talked to a number of directors on this, have put risk management on the board docket. Let's Mm. talk about it. What are Mm -hmm. we doing about it? Howard alluded to risk appetite and risk readiness and all the elements that go around that. Boards now, it's often a very technical topic. They think about that for good reason. Howard, what would you add? Well, I, I think that you've hit a, a very important point, not only on the boards but on the companies and, and dealing with this. And your question, Jeff, of course, on myopia is really a central one in the sense that uh, uh, yeah. that is one of the reasons why it's easy if you think about next year to say something isn't going to happen to me. And uh, myopia certainly deals with that. And we can't afford to essentially uh, invest in something that has such a low probability. And so one of our suggestions and something that I think the board is uh, willing to take up as well, but to companies, is um, if you can say to, uh, to companies, look, uh, you're in this for the long haul. There's a long term, and think long term. And one of the ways to reflect on long term is that if you are saying, uh, well, you know, this is a one in a hundred uh, event occurring, a one in a hundred year flood, let's say, or earthquake, and we're not going to really worry about that. Um, but if you say to them, look, you know, you're, let's say you're going to be in this area for a number of years, let's say 25 or 30 years, over a 30-year period, you could have one or more floods or earthquakes with a probability of one in four. And that one in four at that point gets uh, people to pay attention. So partly overcoming myopia is stretching the time horizon. That's the same probability, uh, assuming the events are independent from one year to the next, in terms of what might actually happen. But the one in four catches their attention. So we, we've, we really have reflected in, in this book, in our checklist uh, and the last chapter, that there are certain things that firms are, have to do a little bit uh, improve on their decision making and one of them is if you frame problems in a way and if they frame problems in a way they could get everyone to pay attention in a way they might not and framing this from one in a hundred to one in four is uh, something that a lot of empirical evidence has shown that people pay attention even though uh, they really are the same probability. Howard, right, let me pick up in that and stay with Jeff's question as well and that is one of the shortcomings that companies have suffered from in recent years is they have been indeed short-term focused, uh, driven by investors partly. Some of that is just uh, self, kind of self-imposed, but whatever the source may be, if companies are faced on, let's say, focused on the quarter, even the year, it makes sense to put off long-term efforts to create a, a flood barrier, for example, uh, or a host of other kind of long-term preventive measures that don't seem to do a bit for your earnings this year, although five or ten years out, they may save the company. All that said, question for you, Howard, is you have uh, devoted a good bit of your career to thinking about bias in decision-making. You work with Daniel Kahneman, used to be on the faculty at Princeton. He's, of course, the person who wrote the book we've talked about on this show several times, Thinking Fast and Slow, and you and Daniel Kahneman and other Academic researchers have given a lot of attention to how the human mind tends to focus on the short term. Uh, We've got all kinds of myopic biases. So offer up a couple of – maybe just help illustrate that with a couple of the biases that you've written about and then help us understand what you mean in the book by deliberative thinking to overcome those. Okay. Happy to do so, Mike. Um, I I, I think what – Mike is referring to is that we really have uh, thought a great deal in our Wharton Risk Center, and a uh, number of us have been reflecting on systematic biases. And I'll mention a few uh, that we we found that firms were resonating to and were trying to actually change. Uh, myopia certainly being one of them. Uh, amnesia being another. Uh, is a tendency to forget. 
um, things uh, after a period of time and say, well, you know, that happened then, but you know, we're not going to worry about it now. And, and often um, there's a cancellation of an insurance policy if it hasn't paid off in a few years. And so that, that is certainly not irrational and deliberative. That's more on the intuitive side. And I, sh I should say that a lot of these biases reflect, as Mike was saying, the intuitive thinking, the fact that we, our emotions play a key role here. We rely on our past experience and forget for that reason if we haven't had anything or if we haven't had an event, we assume it won't happen to us. So the myopia and amnesia are part of that. Optimism also is another thing. We'd like to be optimistic. That's a really good trait uh, in general, and we do very well with most of our decisions by being optimistic, but it's not a particularly good trait with the low probability events if your optimism says it's not going to happen to me, hmm. and as a result, you don't pay attention to it, and you're misperceiving the risk because it could be a lot higher than you think. Then there's the inertia bias, which is uh, we're going to maintain the status quo rather than actually moving away because it's costly to move away, and, there, and we want to avoid having to do that. And we may lose big and, and maybe gain something, and then the feeling is, well, what would happen if we lose? And so let's just stay where we are. We simplify. Uh, and we say, look, let's focus on uh, a single dimension of a risk, uh, like the low probability. Uh, and what we would suggest in that case, maybe if you want to think about the uh, one dimension, think about a worst-case scenario, and you then may pay attention. Uh, and then we tend to follow the herds. We follow our neighbors. Other firms are doing this. Why don't we do the same thing? And that, of course, causes a problem, uh, particularly if it turns out that investors and others are also short-term. And part of the challenge with the financial crisis was that if you were trying to take protective measures and other firms weren't doing it, you might get penalized for, for, because of the fact you were spending more than you should. And so there are a number of challenges here that you're raising, mm -hmm. uh, Mike, and our, our interest in the book. Uh, is to think more deliberatively and ask how we can make more deliberative decisions. And what we say is we do have to recognize these biases. They are part of all of our decision-making processes, but we can do something about them. Um, and let me take the, the one example you used, Mike, which is a really good one. Actually, Howard, I'm going to intervene for a second and okay, have please. you hang on to that example because we have to actually take a station break. Oh, well, absolutely. So, uh, first like, things first. Okay, you know. everybody hang in there. I just want to remind <laughs> listeners that I'm with Jeff Klein. I'm Mike Hussein. You are listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School, Sirius uh, XM Channel 111. So stay tuned. We're going to come back and talk more with Howard Kunruther about mastering catastrophic risk and why deliberative thinking is a good idea and how to get some of it. Stay tuned. We'll be back. Welcome back. Absorb those sounds. Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Mike Yusim. I'm here with Jeff Klein. And we are in active dialogue with Professor Howard Kunruther of our very own school, who has co-authored uh, with yours truly a new book published a week ago, Mastering Catastrophic Risk, How Companies Are Coping with Disruption. Howard, uh, just before we took the station break, we got talking about deliberative thinking and what it is and why we need more of it. So if you wouldn't mind just resuming more or less where we were, what's that term referred to and then how do we get more of it? Well, deliberative thinking, and as you pointed out, uh, Daniel Kahneman has highlighted that in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, by talking about the contrast between intuitive thinking, where, you, uh, where emotions and your past experience play a key role, and we do pretty well for most decisions except these low-probability events, uh, where we don't have a lot of past experience and emotions rule the roost in many situations, to deliberative thinking. And deliberative thinking is really just what it, the word implies, systematic analysis. Uh, what are the benefits? What are the costs? What are the trade-offs? Uh, how do we begin to think long-term rather than just focusing on myopia in the short term? And, and, and that is what you're striving for, but it's sometimes very hard to do, uh, and particularly with these events that are low probability but could be catastrophic, there's a tendency to do more intuition than one would like. Now, firms are changing their behavior, and I think the example that you used just before the break 
Mike, and turning to me, uh, uh, was the notion that firms sometimes aren't going to be investing in protective measures. Uh, they are really concerned about the high cost, uh, and as a result, they basically say, well, you know, I'm, I really I, don't, I can't afford to do this, or this is going to hurt my bottom line, and if I do this and I do this in my division, the other divisions aren't doing it, and I'm, I'm going to look really poor uh, next year. Uh, when I when we comes to bonus time, and so as a result of that, uh, there's a tendency to avoid perhaps investing in something that has long-term payoffs when you make a, a building more protective uh, and 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 take certain steps. Uh, that's with the life of the building. It's not a one-year deal; it's a multi-year deal. And so one of the thoughts that we suggested that comes out is if you want to deal with these upfront costs, uh, why not try to spread them over time? Take a long-term loan. Uh, it's not that difficult to do that. And then the cost of this loan uh, will not only justify the investment, but if you can tie it to uh, the insurance policy and get the insurer to say, look, you're now a safer firm. You're reducing the chances of a particular uh, catastrophic event occurring by investing in these protective measures. Your premium is going to go down uh, because you've done that step. Uh, this is the kind of thing that FM Global, a, a, a company, has done for years, and, uh, and, and other companies are doing a similar thing. Now, when you do that, you really uh, all of a sudden address the myopia bias very directly, which is what we're, we were talking about earlier. You don't, you, we all are myopic, but now myopia actually looks pretty positive because the cost of the loan uh, is going to be very often less than the reduction in the insurance premium. And so if you do deliberative thinking, even for the next year, you'd say this is a good deal. We're, we're saving more by taking this step because the loan cost is not as, not as high as the insurance premium reduction. And so you now have a strategy for helping firms to do certain things that they otherwise might not do. Howard and Mike, I, um, this question's been on my mind uh, since the, the beginning of this conversation. And, and we were talking, Mike, I think you were describing Fukushima and the impacts that that had to firms, you know, half a world away. Um, and, and so I, I'd love both your perspectives on this. Maybe we'll, we'll start with Mike and then go over to Howard. Um, if, if, if you're a, a risk manager, if you're a CEO at a firm, a business unit head, is the what's the framing that you'd recommend when we think about how to how to do this worst case scenario planning? Right? Is it what happens if an event like Fukushima occurs, um, which is the external event, and then we think about all right, what are the ways in which that external event? impacts internal operations um, and or because I, I realize it's not one just one or the other is it what happens if our supply chains disrupted or we yeah. can't get parts I mean how do you encourage leaders to kind of engage in this sort of a um, thought process Jeff it's the pragmatic question with about four or five different ways to think about how to responding if you are a manager number one if you sit in your office, you see certain things that are threatening your operations, but it is amazing how people who are in different offices often see something else that you mm -hmm. did not see. And so maybe the first uh, step, if you are asked by your employer or your company or your division to think about the risks, is to think about the, own, the, the world you're in, but also spend a good bit of time with the frontline people who are often in our case, in contact with students or mm -hmm. uh, customers or patients, depending on the institution. So work out to the front, but also work up to the top. People at the top can often see things coming that are uh, digital disruption, for example, is often <laughs> picked up pretty quickly yeah. by people at the very top because they can see it threatening everything they're doing. So first step, and I'm going to throw it back over at Howard in just a second, is to become more savvy at reading weak signals. And that's a phrase that kicks around. Weak signals are those just early warning signs. They're just not obvious that uh, there are problems out there. I'll come back with an illustration in a few minutes on that one. We've got to get better at reading those weak signals. We've got to scan uh, what's out there. Uh, having now 
put together a, uh, let's call it a master list. Many companies do this now. They've mm-hmm. got a, a rendering of the 10 biggest risks and then the second biggest 10 as seen by operations in Mexico and Japan and even right here in Philadelphia. And then once we've got uh, uh, an assessment of what does potentially threaten the company, what could drop our shock stock price if we're publicly traded by 20 percent in, in five days, then we have to think about the steps to mitigate or build in resilience. Let's come uh, back to that in a few minutes. Howard, why don't you add to Jeff's query there? No, no, I think it's a, you've made some really important points there, and Jeff, yeah. it is a great question. I think that one of the things that firms uh, can do is, uh, in the spirit of what Mike just said, is they can learn from near misses. They can sort of say, look, here are some things that almost happened to us, and uh, we really better take some steps now. It could be a major disaster if something else had occurred. And in, in that sense, creating the kind of worst-case scenarios that they otherwise might not take. Uh, the airline industry mm. does a great job on that, and uh, there is a, an article that we cite uh, uh, by uh, several organization theorists, one of the famous ones, Jim March, learning from samples of one or fewer. And it's, mm. it's a captivating title, but it, what it really means is and uh, that you learn not necessarily from an accident, but from a near accident. And the airlines are used as an example. So that's one thing that can be done, is and, and do that with Within the organization and have uh, members of the organization contribute to that and think about this as a, as a company-wide phenomena rather than just people at the top. And I think that's part of the enterprise risk management uh, uh, phenomenon that has now been hitting a number of firms. So I think that's a, a, a very, very important uh, element here is the learning uh, from uh, from their misses. The other is, learn, uh, and it partly Mike alluded to this, uh, you want to learn from others. Uh, you can learn from your competitors. Uh, trade associations play a really yeah. important role here yeah. in bringing companies together, and you can construct worst-case scenarios together and not just feel that you're in, uh, alone on this, but that everyone has to deal with it. And, of course, the industry benefits from that enormously, but each of the companies does, too, because they are learning mm-hmm. from others rather than just from themselves. And so I think that aspect uh, is another way to deal with it. Uh, and, and in the process, I think what happens is you recognize that these are events that actually could occur more frequently than anyone would imagine because you're now talking with others. Uh, you're thinking about the near misses. And the minute you can put it on the table that it's something you have to pay attention, you may be able to then justify it to yourself, justify it to the board, and get all of the organization in back of you to take these appropriate steps as Mike said, to take preventive measures now rather than waiting for the disaster to occur. And, Howard, just to anchor that in an illustration that we develop in the book and that we've actually mentioned on this program in the past, and that is the example of building on a near miss. A near miss is a weak signal that there's something out there that if it missed you this time may not miss you next time. And a case that we were a kind of a dark moment in American life that we document and develop in the book is that of a company, a big U, uh, big New York-based uh, investment bank, Morgan Stanley, which happened to have a number of floors in the south tower of the World Trade Center uh, coming into 9-11. And as the initial, uh, the initial attack occurred, uh, the aircraft uh, plowed into the north tower, uh, not where Morgan Stanley was located, but, of course, that was around quarter of nine there on September 11th, one And in the initial minutes after that uh, catastrophic hit, the head of security for Morgan Stanley called up his boss, the chief executive, and said, this is what has happened. Uh, The Port Authority is saying we ought to stay put in our own building, the South Tower, because there's debris coming down, streets are chaotic. The CEO said, well, what do you think? And the, the chief risk officer for Morgan Stanley, a gentleman named Richard Rescorla, said, I think we ought to get the heck out of here. And he said that in part because he'd been through it before with a near miss. Back in 93, eight years earlier, a truck bomb in the basement of the World Trade Center had gone off, killed a number of people. Didn't directly impact on Morgan Stanley, but Rich Viscorla, thinking about risk, what's our appetite, what's our readiness, uh, created a drill, an annual drill going forward now, in which he asked, with the company backing him up, everybody to evacuate 
the building annually. So they had to come down, not by elevator, but down those uh, many, many staircases. Mm-hmm. A lot of complaining about that. But on the morning of 9-11, when the CEO said to Rich Rescorla, well, what do you think we should do? He said, we ought to get the heck out of here. He, Rescorla, gave the instruction, which quickly went up and down the tower. And of the several thousand Morgan Stanley employees that were in the South Tower, they did manage to get out before the South Tower was hit a few minutes after 9 And why was that? Well, he picked up on a near miss to practice a routine, a kind of a risk management routine of quick evacuation. Uh, Almost everybody got out. The really dark side to this is that Rich Rescorla himself went in at the very end to see if everybody had managed to get out, and he did not come out before the the second tower was hit. Uh, Becomes one of the great um, martyrs and heroes of that event. Uh, But back to the main thrust here. Uh, near misses, your own or others. Many of the people we talked with, for example, Jeff said that after we watched what happened to British Petroleum in the Gulf, other companies in the energy industry, they were thinking, whoa, yeah. we better get our platforms up to standard because we just saw what happened there. Catastrophic. CEO was fired. Uh, many people killed, of course, in the collapse of the of the platform. And uh, thus, near misses are one of the great... <laughs> drivers of what we're talking about here. Let let me add uh, one other point to this in terms of just the illustration of it takes often a severe disaster for companies to pay attention. Uh, We benefited a great deal, and I want to mention this right at the outset before I give an example of an an insurance example, uh, from um, uh, really the generosity of uh, the Travelers Insurance Company uh, in providing us with the freedom by giving us a grant to both our our joint centers and dedicate the book Uh, to Jay Fishman, uh, who was the CEO, who unfortunately passed away uh, several years ago now uh, from ALS. And Jay is the kind of person who really understood all these dimensions with respect to what you're talking about and always was very modest and wanted to get his organization uh, to pay attention. Uh, But having said that, and the insurance industry is certainly uh, an industry that takes these risks seriously, they had behavior, and they're the first ones to admit this, uh, that went in the opposite direction from what you were just talking about, Mike, because they never charged a penny for terrorism insurance before 9-11. They never focused on it. They had the 1993 World Trade Center disaster, and they basically uh, uh, said, well, it really didn't do a lot of harm to us, and so they didn't pay a lot of attention. We had Oklahoma City, you had terrorism. And so they basically uh, gave companies a, basically a free ride with respect to providing terrorism coverage. But after 9-11, they refused to offer the coverage mm. because of the severe disaster and said, we got to really be paying attention to this risk, uh, you got a much, a very interesting piece of legislation, the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, that basically, I think, benefited everyone by providing some protection against these large losses, and that was a, a silver lining that came out, and you had the insurance industry, and they're the first ones to say to pay attention to these events now that they hadn't paid attention to before, but it, it, it illustrated, and again, as I say, what we, we've worked with closely with them over the years, they'd say, you know, that we we followed basically intuitive thinking in our uh, approach to terrorism before 9-11. We saw this as below our threshold level of concern. Now we are realizing that there are these events we really have to pay more attention to, and they certainly have done that with respect to not only terrorism, but uh, other catastrophic accidents, including the BP oil spill that you mentioned, Mike. By the way, if you've got a question about any of the above, we have an open line here. Give us a call, 844-942-7866. Uh, I'm Mike Usain, Jeff Klein's here. We're talking with Howard Kunruther about mastering catastrophic risk. So I, I want to take the conversation maybe in a, a little bit of a different direction here. Um, and what I'm thinking about now is that, you know, we, we've cited the financial crisis um, as, as another of the high consequence uh, catastrophic kinds of risks that uh, firms are, are trying to manage. And what I'm thinking about in relation to the financial crisis, I'm sure there are examples um, that that come out of other kinds of um, other kinds of events which which have had the the similar kinds of impact. Is that it's not just businesses; it's not just the firms that are looking to prevent 
the same kinds of impacts that have been experienced. And and so specifically, I'm thinking about the role of government within, you know, managing catastrophic mm-hmm. risk. And, you know, Howard, what, um, first of all, what, what role in your mind government is best suited to play? And then what impact, you know, changes in regulations, changes in laws can have on, on the firm's ability to manage risk? Well, it's a great question, uh, Jeff. And we do spend time in the book on exactly the issue because, gov- because firms are very concerned about regulations but also feel that they may be important. Mm-hmm. And I think the financial crisis really illustrates that uh, in, the, in the following sense. And I, I alluded to that earlier, but let me say a few more words about that. If a firm uh, doesn't, isn't forced to take certain actions and, 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 and uh, thinks about and has their balance sheet examined and other things examined, they may basically say, we're gonna take, we can't afford to necessarily take certain protective actions because of the fact that other firms are not doing this. And as a result of that, you may have an industry crisis, which is exactly what happened in 2008-9, with a couple of firms uh, behaving in a way that made them uh, more solid and more solvent than others. But there was a general feeling that if they did that, they would lose out to these other firms in terms of the competitive market. And that's where regulation really becomes important, is a way of getting a level playing field and forcing certain things that the individual firms may not actually do themselves. Now, of course, after 2008-9, we had Dodd-Frank, and we know that that's been modified. And a lot of firms said that that went over the top, and that was kind of like the pendulum that went too far over uh, the edge there. And there may, and I think there's an element of truth in that. But at the same time, Dodd-Frank was trying to say, look, we've got to protect and avoid another crisis. So regulations in the right degree, and and what the right degree is, we don't say exactly what the right degree is, but we make the point that there has to be regulations that look at the benefits and costs of the regulations before you actually necessarily enforce some things, uh, will play a very important role here, and government plays an important role for that reason. So you do have the public sector that has to be a part of this. That's certainly a point that we would make in the book, but we at the same time try to indicate that we would like market forces uh, to also play a very key role. We're at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, so the market is certainly something that we look to. But you can't avoid the government, in, in particularly for some of these low-probability events. Howard, do you want to add to that? Uh, well, I'm actually going to take uh, our few remaining minutes to get you to uh, begin to sum up on how, with all that's been said, if a person listening here is in a in a community organization, a medical office, uh, maybe just a, a local community foundation, or a larger enterprise, whatever kind, what are a couple steps they ought to think about? And I know near the end, uh, you and your co-author here have offered up 15 steps towards <laughs> mastering catastrophic risk. So give us that's, a couple of those as we come to right, an end. Mike, and you're the co-author, uh, I so, guess so you're, the, you, have no, you, you have some <laughs> obligation here to say a few words yeah, as well. I will do it indeed. <laughs> but we do, we do at the, la- the last part of the book, and Mike has alluded to, we have a checklist for action. And we first started <laughs> off by saying there are sets of pitfalls, and we've certainly... Uh, highlighted a number of those in, in, in the context of our discussion here, like not preparing for low probability events or underappreciation of the global connectedness and uh, thinking it won't happen to us. And so we go through that and risk denial. I think that's also a very important part. And after we do that, we say, look, there are a set of steps that we should highlight that you may want to deal with this. And uh, I'll, I'll say a few, Mike. I'll turn to you. You say a few, and then we can sort of t- tag team here as we end. I think we'll, that's most we'll, appropriate we'll if you're do. willing to do that. Um, um, you know, we, we say, look, risk management is a value-creating strategy, that you should think about risk management positively. Think about the long-term investments and prioritize, as we've talked about, the risk and stretch those time horizons in, in a way along the lines of what we're talking about, anticipating the worst. Uh, and one last point, and I'm going to turn to you, Mike, for some others. Um, know your risk appetite and risk tolerance. They all go together in a sense. You really want to focus on these risks and make some deliberative decisions, and these are some ways of doing it. Let me quickly add a couple column leadership checklist items here that we all need to pay attention to. You've mentioned a couple, Howard, which is great. Conducting what 
by military tradition is called an after-action review. So if you've had a near miss or you've seen a competitor uh, suffer terribly in ways that uh, there but for the grace of God might go you, this is a great time to step back, sit down with people in your office, and just talk over lunch about uh, what might have been done differently on their part or even your part to ensure against that kind of misfortune in the future. Another point uh, we make is that everybody, everybody is responsible. The board of directors, the, the central office, the front line. And isn't that the calling of us all is to ensure that everybody becomes more savvy about the risks, some large, some very specific and small, but they're all still risks that can derail things badly. Everybody is responsible, I think, is the phrase that captures that. And then just finally, and Howard, i got one final question for you here with a minute to go. Uh, learning to be unsurprised by surprise. Let's, uh, we never know specifically what's coming. Of course, if we did, we would uh, we'd retire rich. But having uh, intimations of what is out there, uh, reading those weak signals, really important to be unsurprised by surprise, being ready before you're surprised to get through it and recover from it. Howard, final thought. we got about a minute here to go. What final guidance would you have the listeners who are thinking about mastering catastrophic risk? Well, one point I would certainly want to highlight is the one you just made. Expect the unexpected. If you can say expect the unexpected, you will be able to somehow take the step to do a number of these other things, and it's sometimes hard uh, to do. And I think that one other aspect that is, um, that is really important uh, is to act fast even with imperfect information. It's a point that is often hard. You say, I don't know that. I'm uncertain. But at the, the, particularly after a catastrophe, you have to deal with these, these things in a way that would actually help the situation, and you may not necessarily know everything. And then I think the point that we have been making throughout this conversation, learning from others, learning from other, you know, so, Sometimes you can learn a great deal from others, and it doesn't even have to be the same event. You can have something that the BP oil spill will get financial institutions to think about things in a different way. So you can sort of open yourself up to these ideas and be, and I think this is often very important for any firm, be transparent. Tell, disclose what your risks are. Let people know rather than trying to hide them. And I think this is the kind of situation that we're facing today with the, uh, uh, an event that you brought up at the beginning of the program with Volkswagen. They didn't disclose uh, what they were doing. They actually uh, denied, and they thought that something wouldn't happen. And look at what now has happened to the company as a result of it. And this is a few years back now uh, that they've been discovered, and we still have that in the headlines today. And so I think the notion of being transparent and being, uh, uh, being mindful of the fact that if you're trying to deceive uh, and think it's not going to happen, uh, you're probably going to get caught and avoid that situation great. at all costs. Howard, thank you on that. A great note to end on. Do it now. Take care of business. Look at it tomorrow. Howard, thank you for joining our show tonight. Well, it's a pleasure, Mike, and thanks for joining in. And I should say to your entire audience, it's been a pleasure working with Mike Usim on this book okay. over the past few years. And I'm going to end on that positive note, and it was great to be with you. Uh, well, thank you, Annette. Uh, for people that would like to correspond with us, you know where we are, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio111. Couple thanks here before we close down. I'd like to thank our special producer tonight, Dana Cash, who is here helping uh, Patty Hall, who could not be here. We have a, a new sound engineer as well. So, Jeff uh, Simons, great to have you here. I'm Mike Usain. I'm in the studio with my friend Jeff Klein. You've been listening to Leadership in Action Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you.